Before I get to the message today, I want to uh, invite us to celebrate something. Uh, we need to celebrate things. When we see God at work and doing stuff, we just need to, to, to point that out. So yesterday, you might have heard, but uh, Thatcher Dunn was able to return home cancer-free. Yeah. There he is. Uh, I know that their family is ecstatic. Uh, Kevin told me this morning, I think, that uh, they did a test where they test his bone marrow, and it all looks like dad. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Love that. So we're so excited for you guys and grateful. And I, I'm sure we'll get opportunities to hear a little more of the story. I loved your post on Facebook. And we've learned a lot from the Duns as they have walked very gracefully through this, uh, through this season. Mm, very thankful. Well, um, we're going to talk this morning about the gift of story, and it is absolutely one of my favorite topics. And as I say that, I, I want us to think about this, um, this series we've been in, uh, Outward with the Mission, and remember that that's tied to our great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Remember, there were two aspects of making disciples. Remember what those were? It was evangelism and equipping, those two words we don't ever want to forget. Now, in this particular series, we are focusing a little less on the equipping side, though we're doing equipping, and we're focusing a lot more on the evangelism side, getting outside of these walls and engaging our world with genuine spiritual life. That's what we get to bring everywhere we go. Now, that's scary, isn't it? I, I, I just haven't met many people other than Jeff Patton. <laughs> They just, they just kind of love it, man. They just eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, man. They just totally, the rest of us are kind of like, oh. I, I thought, of, you know, Jeff shared an awesome story with his, the guy that discipled him, Joe Schrader. Remember them walking up to those big old burly bikers and they delivered the goods and man, it was such a neat time. Well, I got to tell you a story from my evangelistic experience. This was in 1988, Hawaii Summer Project. I'm there as a summer missionary. And uh, I ended up kind of having a leadership role among the students that were there. And the day came where we would go out and do beach evangelism. That's where you just, you literally head down to the beach and you just strike up conversations. And when you get the opportunity, you share your faith. So we're pairing everybody up, and it, it just worked out where the numbers weren't even. So being the wonderful leader that I was, I said, I got it. I'll go by myself. The rest of you all pair up, you know. So full of pride. I, I go down to the beach, and I'm looking around for someone to engage, and I see this dude sitting on a, just one of those beach chairs, and there's an empty one next to him, and I thought, all right, great opportunity. So... I sat down and I'm going through, you know, like, what am I going to say? How am I going to start this conversation? And I'm feeling terrified, honestly. And I keep looking over at this guy and 
then I start thinking about all the reasons why he probably doesn't want to talk to a guy like me. He'd probably think I'm kind of a weirdo. And he's just here. I mean, he's in Hawaii sitting on a beach. Why does he want to talk to me about faith and Jesus and religion and all that? So just to make a long story short, I chickened out and walked away. <laughs> it's tragic. But I'm just trying to be real with you. That's how a lot of us have experienced evangelism. We knew it was the right thing to do, and we know we have the best message on earth, but when it comes right down to it, it is scary as can be. And here's what I've learned about myself, and maybe this is true of you. The reason I get so afraid is because I have such a need for validation. I want to be accepted, I want to be liked, I want to be affirmed, even by strangers. And if, if the risk is too high that I might get rejection instead of those things, then I'll just bail out altogether. I won't risk that loss. I'll just try and find somebody else who might affirm me or accept me or like me. Can you relate to that? It sure plays in on this whole thing of evangelism. Here's the question that we wrestle with. And if you look out there, to, you know, Google uh, fear in evangelism. And the, the question that comes up is that we all wrestle with is what will I say? Because we want to say something really smart, really catchy, really engaging. We want to get off to a good start with whoever it is we're talking to. So we ask this question, what will I say? But there's two places we can focus with that question. We can focus on the hearer's response. And so again, then my focus is, well, I gotta say it just right and say just the right words and I don't wanna sound stupid because I want a good response. This morning, we're gonna learn how to shift out of that kind of focus to a better focus and that is on the hearer's need. See, regardless of how they respond, they need to hear the gospel, Christian or not. We all need to hear it, right? And so then in that moment, I'm not focused as much on what kind of response I'm going to get, but I just want to deliver the goods. I want to, in the words we're going to say this morning, I just want to tell the story. And, and then, as we've been talking about, I do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. I leave the results to God. There's no pressure. I don't have to close any deal. I'm just a messenger. I just got to deliver the mail. Now, Peter's take on this question, what will I say? Here's what he said. We need, as Christians, to prepare a defense. Now, that, that word in the Greek is apologia, where we get the word apologetics. And typically, when we hear the word apologetics, we start thinking of all these really smart people that are in all of our seminaries all around the country, and those guys and gals have the answers, and we don't. So maybe I can tell somebody to go read a book or watch a video or visit a website or whatever, but certainly I can't answer. But Peter's words aren't to the scholars. Peter's words are to everybody. He says, for all of us, we ought to be prepared to give an answer for the hope 
that is in us. And here's the deal. You are the world's greatest authority on the hope that is in you. And that answer is as good as answer as they'll ever hear. Now, yes, there are some great questions, some challenging questions, and there are answers to those questions, and all of us can get better at that. We can learn some things. And, but, but where we're going to focus today is on your greatest defense, and your greatest, or as in your outline says, your first defense is your story about God's goodness to you and to the rest of the world. That's it. That's the defense. Now, we don't just automatically know all of that. We know part of it, but what we're going to see today is it requires some preparation. That's why Peter said, be prepared. Prepared to make a defense to anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. That's in 1 Peter 3, 13. So, this defense is related to one of the connections on our portrait of a connected life. Remember, that's our strategy for Christian living. And one of those connections, you can see it up there to the right, is connecting backward with our story. What I have found, this was true of me and most of the people that I've talked to, is we have not given much thought to kind of the comprehensive aspects of our story. It wasn't like God just showed up one day, brought us to salvation, and then we just lived happily ever after as Christians. It's like, no, there's just been this long process. God was active prior to our conversion. He was active in our conversion, and then he continues to work until we take our last breath. That's the story. And it takes some thought to, to be able to pull from aspects of that story as you are engaging people around you based on not their validation, but their need. Paul gives us a great model of doing this. And that's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time today. We're in Acts 26. Now, this is just one of a few times where we find Paul telling his story in a variety of contexts with Jews, with Gentiles, uh, with Roman officials, with your everyday man or woman. Um, this particular context is somewhat like a trial, although it doesn't have any real significance for Paul. Um, he is, uh, he's been tried uh, before the Jewish tribunal and supposedly he has broken a lot of Jewish traditions so severely that they're recommending he be killed for it. And uh, he gets pulled out of a pretty violent situation in uh, chapter 22 and uh, is brought before the Roman leaders. And so they start investigating and they're like, we don't really see anything here that would cause you to deserve death. But... In God's providence, it just kind of keeps lingering. And what's interesting is Paul just keeps getting these opportunities to tell his story. At one point, he even asks as a Roman citizen to be taken before Caesar in Rome. So that's what, that's what put him where he is in, in Acts 26, where we find him here. And 
it's really kind of an interesting turn of events. He was before a leader named Festus. And again, as Festus invested everything, he was like, I, I can't really declare you guilty. You don't deserve death, but I don't know what to tell Caesar. So he just puts Paul in prison, says, kind of sit there for a while. Let me figure this out. And a king comes to town, King Agrippa. He happens to be very familiar with Jews, with Israel, with their history, with all that they have done, good and bad, as they've interacted with the empire of Rome. And so he's sort of an expert. Festus tells him about Paul's story, and it piques his interest. So this king, he says, I want to talk to him. I want to hear his story. Festus says, all right, maybe I can get something to tell Caesar out of this. So he arranges this big, it's kind of like celebrity trial or something, but he pulls all the big guys together and brings Paul before them. And that's where we find this moment in Acts 26. Now, what's interesting to me about Paul is, okay, there is no one who knows more about the Old Testament than the Apostle Paul. He's as smart and as knowledgeable and as experienced as anybody when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to God's activity. He's a theologian, right? He's all of that. But what's interesting is here, he doesn't unload everything he knows. He's actually very selective about what he shares from his story. It's very purposeful. And yet in all of that, he's personable, he's thoughtful, he's humble, he's transparent, he's rational. It's pretty amazing. So this is our model this morning. If you're wondering, what will I say? Perhaps this can give you a bit of a model. It's not a, a prescription. It, it's just some things to think about as you're preparing to give an answer to somebody. And I'll, I'll just tell you right now, I'm not picking this apart in, in a scholarly way this morning. I want us to let Paul's story speak to us as much as it was speaking to this early tribunal. So the first thing Paul does is he models a great mindset. And, and it's in your outline, anytime, anywhere. Here it is, verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. I think that's kind of funny, like very dramatic. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. There it is, apologia. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen, listen to me patiently. So anytime, anywhere, I think part of what we need to get here is Paul had no warning, and this is a king. So if there were ever a pressure-packed kind of moment, this would be it. But we can see here that he's not trying to come up with something new, something fascinating, something sort of intriguing to bring into this conversation. In his mind, it's like, oh, this is King Agrippa. I know something about him. He actually knows a lot about Jews. That means he knows a lot about me and what I have believed. He knows a lot about the history of Israel. Wow, 
What a great opportunity. Now this, quote, trial means nothing because his next trial, Paul's next trial, is with Caesar. So he, he probably knows this is just kind of a, we're just going through the motions here. We're going to entertain some uppity ups and, and it won't have any effect on Paul. But what he gets is, is he's going to have an audience with people that very few Christians or not in his day would ever have had an opportunity to talk to. So do you see the shift? He's not trying to do anything for himself. He sees need all over the place and steps right in and begins to do, uh, point number two, he begins to build bridges. And this is what we do when, our, when we tell our story. Um, there's, a, there's a statement, um, to be a person is to have a story to tell. So that is a great place for all of us to connect with literally anyone. We can just tell our story generally. What we're trying to do is tell our story strategically so that we can link it to some spiritual significance. But let's see how Paul does that with this audience, beginning in verse 4. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope... I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul is leveraging what he knows about this king. He recognizes that this king knows something about the history of the Jews. And though he may not agree or believe in what the Jews believe, he certainly understands that there has been this very, very long history of dedication to a God who they claim created all things and will one day provide a deliverer, the hope of Israel. And he knows that that history goes way, way, way back before the Roman Empire ever even uh, arrived. So he's going to leverage all of that and essentially establish himself as like, I'm the, I'm the model Jew, I'm a Pharisee. I've been trained to live and breathe this stuff every single day at the highest level. So my own people are acting as if I've stopped being Jewish when in reality, all I'm doing is walking in the very thing that Jews have expected since Abraham. couple of connections that Paul makes. One is around the idea of devotion. Now think about this. Kings get devotion. They understand it. They expect it. What's interesting is they usually expect to be the object of devotion rather than giving their devotion to anyone else. Now he would certainly understand that as it relates to Caesar, but he's going to value that. That's going to connect with him. All, all Paul's saying is, listen, I'm a faithful Jew. I am devoted to this 
larger story. And now all I'm doing is living out the implications of this story, having met, seen, he's going to get into this in just a minute, having met the promise that we've been talking about for centuries. And that leads to the second thing he connects around, and that's the idea of hope. Now, certainly that is a universal thing, right? Most people that we interact with are going to have it or not. Um, Oftentimes when they're hopeless, they would love to hear a story from someone who actually has hope. But he doesn't ground his hope in just wishful thinking or kind of this new thing he's put together. He grounds it in historical reality. Everybody knows about Jesus. There's a lot of debate about whether he rose from the dead and Paul certainly makes the resurrection a very central part of his hope. But but he's not just grasping at thin air here. He's saying that this hope is rooted in fulfilled prophetic promises. And that's something that this king and those who are around him can understand. After essentially laying that foundation, then Paul shifts his focus to another part of his story that's, that's got to be the most painful part of his story. Now, we know these facts as just information. Um, we just sort of know this is Paul's life and he's sort of unique and all that, but you just got to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Listen to these words. This is a redeemed child of God and a leader of God's church. And listen to what he shares with this king. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So just think about the humility that 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 would take. I, I think he's just trying to say to this king and all of these celebrities standing around him, hey, listen, I'm just like my accusers, probably worse. And this story that I'm telling you, it's not because I'm better than or beyond everybody or above everybody or anything like that. Hey, the story I'm telling you, I didn't believe it. I actually fought against it. I literally wrecked people's lives fighting against it. I'm the storyteller. And I know what it's like to be on both sides of this story. And that lends great credibility to what Paul is saying. He's not just the smartest guy in the room. He has personally been transformed by what he's talking about. So there is an idea here where I think Paul is building bridges, inviting his listeners to enter into his personal story 
and he's hoping that we can identify with one another. See, I'm not a Christian. I, I, I think about this sometimes. If somebody met Paul much later in his life, they might have thought, well, Paul's just always been this way. He's just always been this righteous, holy guy, just always doing the right thing and always saying the right thing. And I think what Paul would say, hey, let me tell you, I was the worst of the worst until God found me. That's my story. So he does that. Then he takes this crowd to the moment where he went from death to life. In your uh, outline, it's a Damascus road. And I, I want to say this before I read this section. Um, I've even heard people say, well, I never really had a Damascus road experience. You know, like, I mean, bright lights and thrown off a horse and voices from heaven as if that's really the point. And it's not, as we're going to see in a moment. But everybody in here, if you're a Christian, you have a Damascus road where you went from death to life. And that's the most important thing that happened in that moment, regardless of how it happened. So let me read this to you. In this connection, so again, what he just shared about his vengeance against the earliest believers, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Just quick side comment there. The idea there is Jesus is saying, it's kind of tough fighting against me, isn't it? It's kind of futile trying to overturn God. Keep going. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That's kind of an interesting phrase. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now we're getting to the heart of the story. He's been building these bridges. He's prepared. He's thought about this ahead of time. He knows how his story relates to God's story. And so he's inviting these people to come in and understand how his conversion explains the transformation in his own life and becomes an invitation to all who hear to experience a similar kind of transformation. I, I think this experience, given what he shared before the Damascus Road uh, aspect of his story, I, I See, I read some verses differently when I have that in mind. Listen to Romans 5.8. Think this is Paul writing. Think about his story. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
while we were persecuting innocent, godly people, while we were ripping families apart and throwing them into jail and and torturing them until they might blaspheme the name of Christ. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see how that sounds different when it is heard in the context of story? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Paul was dead. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. I had a Damascus Road experience. Here's a picture of the location. Rocky Mountains of Colorado, Frontier Ranch, Young Life. And uh, prior to that, um, I was kind of your typical latchkey kid. Um, Way too much freedom. Constantly afraid, angry, insecure, and basically just trying to take the world by the throat and make it be what I wanted it to be. So I just compulsively chased after anything that made me feel better. Fill in the blank. And I'd been in church. I'd heard about Jesus. I believed there was a God, but I didn't think he really wanted to have anything to do with a guy like me. And then there was this crazy bunch of college kids that just would walk up to me and say, hi, how you doing? And they would actually hang around a little bit, start conversations with me. And and it didn't seem like I had to do anything to to make them be my friend. They just kept hanging around. And then they told me about this camp and that they actually, they knew that my, my mom couldn't afford to send me to camp. So they would make a way for me to go to camp if I would be willing to go. So I'm like, sure, man, sounds fun. So I ride a bus out to Colorado. And my light, the light that shone for Paul, was some of the most amazing creation I've ever seen in my life. Those mountains and the stars at night and all that, that that spoke to me about a creator. And then every day when we had club, I heard the story, starting in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation. And all of that spoke to me that there was a God who loved me completely apart from anything I could ever do for him. And that's what did it. And I basically said, God, if, if you can forgive a guy like me, and if you want me in a relationship with you, I'll take it. I need it. I want it. And I was told that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's my story. Just a little part of my story. But if you want to know me, you got to know that. Because it informs everything else. 
All that God has done prior to, at conversion, and to this day. Every conversion story highlights the redemptive activity of God, regardless of the details. And no one's story in this room is any better or worse or even in competition with anyone else's story. Listen, I want to show you what happens in the life of every person who comes to Christ. Paul talks about how God said he was going to use him. But, so this is how God uses our stories, but it, it shows the significance of stories. Look, he says, I'm sending you to to basically bring sight, open the eyes of the people that you're talking to. So there is this move from spiritual blindness to sight and then a turn from darkness to light and then a turn from Satan to God. This is really getting at our affections, the things that are most important to us. This conversion brings about forgiveness of sin. Don't, don't dismiss that. That's a big deal. That's the deal. If you're not forgiven, you don't get to be with God. And then a place in God's family, belonging. You know that thing we talked about earlier, that need for validation? When you get this, you don't need that from anybody around here anymore. You got it from God, so you're free. You can focus on others' needs. And then lastly, this idea of sanctification, which really is a blend of being set apart by God and then transformed by God. That's what God called Paul, and that's what God calls us to deliver in terms of story. That's the change that our stories God uses to bring about. Now, there's a context for our stories that's always in play. Until God returns, Jesus returns, and makes all things new, this is the context every time we tell our story. This is in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Paul's mind was blind. The Jews of his day, they were blind. You and I were blind. And he did that to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. See, we don't tell our stories just so that people can get us to know us better. We tell our stories so that people can get to know Jesus better. So we don't proclaim just ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God did in you and that's how he will use your story to do a similar work in those who hear it. And that brings us to the end of this description and uh, I just call it delivering the gift. Uh, Paul wasn't um, content with just telling about his own conversion. He kind of pushed it a little further to say, so what do you think about this story? Uh, how are you going to respond to this? But as I said, free, like 
He doesn't have to get a, a certain kind of response. So he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. I love how he's sort of telling them how they ought to respond without telling them how they ought to respond. He's like, yeah, I'm just telling a story. But by the way, the story I'm telling is giving you a clue about how you ought to respond to this message. The, the fact is we all stand with Paul in a long line of couriers. Remember, we've been talking about this idea of, of God's really commissioned us to deliver the mail. And uh, the mail has something to do with our story and God's story. I want to mention one quick resource to you. Uh, it's by Matt Chandler called The Explicit Gospel. And this book does a great job of showing how those two relate to each other. It talks about a gospel in the air and a gospel on the ground. The gospel on the ground is really a, a personal story about us and our journey into faith and relationship with God. So the, the headers for that are God, man, Christ, and response. Then the gospel in the air is linking our personal story with the much larger redemptive story of God in history. So that is creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. And we don't want to neglect either of those because your salvation isn't only about you. But we also don't want to just leave this ethereal kind of thing out there to which we're not personally connected because we are. God saved you to make you a part of his story. That's a precious gift. And it's a gift that you get to give away, that I get to give away, that Paul gave away. And the bottom line is we, we just got to deliver it. Think less about the response and more about the gift. Now, the response that he gets, I'm not going to read through this, but... He's mocked by Festus. Um, the king is it, it, it seemingly unresponsive. And uh, Paul kind of pokes him a little bit. He's like, hey, you believe this, don't you? I mean, you've been around long enough. You know the Jews. You know Israel. So you believe this. I, I'm sure that you do. And uh, it's funny. The king's response is like, Man, if I give you enough time, you might convert me, Paul. Sort of a joke. But then we get Paul's heart. I want to read the end. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, King Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Like, listen, the, the reason I'm standing before all you guys telling you all this stuff about me is so that you might know the gift that I have received. I want you to have it. And understand that there were people in the room that wanted to kill Paul if they'd only had a moment. But that's his heart. And that's what people need to get, maybe more than anything when we tell our stories, is they need to get our heart 
Telling our stories is one of our greatest privileges and also a sacred responsibility that we have as couriers of the gospel. I love this phrase in 2 Corinthians 3. You are a letter from Christ. How about that? He's writing a love letter to everyone that you encounter. And you're the letter. Will you deliver that letter? I want to mention a quick resource to you. And uh, it's called Life Story. So if you'd like to learn more about this or shoot me an email, I'd love to talk to you more about how you can work on that story. Here's three takeaways. These are the bottom of your outline. First of all, God is the hero of your story. Don't ever want to forget that. Secondly, especially for those painful things, Like what Paul shared, God wastes nothing. The very darkest moments of your life, God is committed to using those for good. doesn't mean those things are good. It just means he can use them for good. And then finally, your story will affect others to the degree that it has affected you. I hope today that you feel tremendous freedom, maybe like never before, just to take advantage of those opportunities that you have each and every day to tell a little bit of your story and to invite God to use that for his purposes. I want to give you an opportunity just to prayerfully consider what's a next step for you? What would it look like for you to to perhaps better prepare your story? Or maybe there's just a next step where you need to... uh, Tell it. So prayerfully consider that for a moment as a so what in response to this message.